Welcome to the Mini of Life, where philosophy gets personal. This podcast is a series of conversations between Dr. Susie Ferrarello and philosophers from around the world, exploring the ever-persistent question of what is the meaning of life, from an intimately personal perspective amongst other topics in philosophy. Our host, Dr. Ferrarello, received her PhD in philosophy from a Sorbonne University in Paris. She is an expert in phenomenology, ethics, moral psychology, and ancient and contemporary philosophy. Dr. Ferrarello is currently a professor of philosophy at California State University, East Bay, and she is also a philosophical counselor. It's a great pleasure for me to have today uh, Dr. Christos Hajoanu. Uh, he's uh, a postdoc researcher uh, uh, at the philosophy department, uh, uh, sorry, in philosophy at the Department of Classics uh, and Philosophy. Uh, he works at the University of Cyprus, uh, which is a wonderful island in uh, the Eastern Mediterranean, and it's a member state of uh, the EU. Um, so, uh, for uh, his philosophical career, uh, he visited uh, plenty of uh, places uh, in Europe, I'd say. Uh, he got his PhD in uh, success. Uh, he worked on uh, Heidegger and the emergence of mood in Heidegger's phenomenology. He was a postdoc at Sofia University. Um, he kept working uh, uh, on uh, the 20th century philosophy, specifically on Martin Heidegger, and uh, the affective aspects of his work, which is uh, um, certainly an interesting angle to treat uh, philosophy, and especially Heidegger's philosophy. Uh, now he's currently working on Heidegger and the Stoics, uh, also on a book on, uh, on book and conference uh, on phenomenology and mindfulness. And um, besides his philosophical career, there's also uh, a, a strong political uh, activity. I mean, uh, he's, uh, um, he's active uh, um, with uh, uh, refugee and migrants. Uh, he's the member of a migrant and refugee solidarity network, which supports African, uh, Middle Eastern refugees and migrants in general uh, uh, from Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, um, Iraqi, and unfortunately today also Ukraine. Is uh, a trade unionist, uh, and uh, thank you for that. He's defending also the union of doctoral uh, scientists in teaching and uh, research, DED. And uh, he's also a co host uh, for uh, a weekly radio show on political and social issues. Um, but the place uh, where I would like to start, um, since uh, we are making philosophy personal. Uh, uh, is your life. I mean, in your bio, uh, what I particularly like is that you mentioned that, that uh, you are married to an intensivist and you are uh, the father of uh, two children. How does that affect your work? Because you said that, uh, you know, this specific aspect of your life strongly impacts your work. Can you tell us a little more about it? Well, thank you very much, Susie, uh, for the uh, invitation uh, and uh, for the for the question. Uh, so um, I, I come uh, prepared to be a bit more uh, personal. Uh, how, how I manage to um, how personal circumstances or extra philosophical circumstances uh, affect uh, my uh, my philosophy. So. Um, before, uh, after I got married, I mean, I had to, uh, I, I got married to uh, an intensivist and an intensivist is a medical doctor who uh, works in the ICU, so in the intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. And uh, slowly but surely, I came to understand uh, that uh, every, the whole household including my own uh, lifestyle, uh, has to conform to this because um, there are uh, sp specific needs uh, and uh, demands that come with, uh, with that uh, job description. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one has to conform to it. 
and uh, it, it absorbs you and in a way that um, in a way that uh, can be um, how should I, you have to accommodate everything to those needs because it's always about life and death uh -huh. uh, and that wins every other need every other uh, uh, practice and therefore, I'll give you something very, very specific. For example, if I have a deadline to meet and uh, I have to submit an article or whatever, uh, but in the same uh, evening or my wife has to is uh, working on in a shift, a night shift, and she ha receives a phone call and she has to go in uh, the, at the hospital to the hospital uh, within minutes then everything is up in the air. So obviously I can't insist and say, oh, look, but I have to submit my uh, philosophical uh, article. Mm -hmm. So you have to, so slowly you have to organize life around that. So that's the practical aspect, how uh, slowly uh, everything becomes oriented in that uh, it becomes a battlefield. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, and you have to, uh, create a space for that um, but it also it's not only practically demanding you also have to I also have to support uh, my my wife uh, also psychologically and uh, mentally because it's very demanding it's so it, there is all it's always uh, a uh, there's always an ugly story happening mm -hmm. you know because not everyone who dies uh, dies timely. Uh, there are many premature deaths. There are mistakes. There are, uh, you know, accidents. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it does take a toll. Uh, and so, whereas in the past, um, I have become interested in Heidegger, I had become interested in Heidegger's philosophy, partly because the, the phenomenon of death was something I was really interested in and mm -hmm. I was intrigued by it and I did suffer uh, from existential anxiety. So Heidegger's philosophy made sense to me, but uh, I never thought that I would end up uh, have, uh, organizing my entire life around uh, death uh, by getting married or right. life and death, or the limit uh, by getting uh, married to, to my wife. Uh, and um, do you see similarities between uh, what you learned in Heidegger and what you are living through the stories of uh, your wife? Or uh, do you think, okay, that was just theory, now life is uh, really something else? Well, okay, there is a massive difference between theory and practice. Uh, for example, uh, time pressure. You, you, you have limited time to react to uh, and to react and you have to practically intervene uh, another thing is uh, when you you when you mourn a death again you have a limited finite time and everything happens very quickly um, what we would describe as urgent in philosophy has a completely different meaning to what they describe as uh, urgent mm -hmm. so the sense of urgency is something completely uh, different uh, but but also yes i have come to uh, verify that uh, many heideggerian insights mm. were correct for example the fact uh, that we are constantly uh, uh, running away from death we don't deal with it mm. uh, and our societies uh, some 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 cultures more than others uh, we have created all these elaborate things that basically are there to uh, just hide or conceal mm -hmm. the fact that we that we are finite creatures and but but this becomes manifested in a different way uh, in the ICU uh, uh, than in philosophy or in, in the philosophical classroom mm -hmm. uh, in the lecture hall. Uh, for example, very often what happens is uh, the uh, uh, patients or their families specifically, they are not ready, they have no solution, they have not worked with their feelings, they don't know how to react 
-hmm. uh, and how to deal with uh, with the death of a loved one and that can that sometimes becomes uh, violent uh -huh. like we have violent reactions mm -hmm. uh, of course uh, that that is also part, uh, cultural i think in in a sense so um poss possibly uh like southern europeans uh, are more uh, explosive let's say in their reactions <laughs> yeah. uh, than uh, say uh, northern europeans uh, who are a bit more um uh, i don't know cool in the way they, they oh. react um, now, and I, I'm sure the sociologists and psychologists would have more to say on that. Maybe, maybe it's not true. I don't know, but that's my impression anyway. So uh, you have to. So there are what's missing. I've realized through uh, talking to my wife and what's going on in the ICU every day that people don't know how to react. To death, and I'm not talking about premature deaths or deaths of you know uh, people who were uh, fine and just had an accident and uh, tragically died. I'm talking about uh, people who can't go on anymore because of the of uh, health deterioration, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and not only that, they have no, there are no answer, they have never faced or we have never faced up to bioethical dilemmas yeah. that. Uh, inevitably come up um, or will come up with uh, a, a relative and, and we get to decide if we are, you know, uh, the relative who is uh, in a position to decide because in the ICU, most people are uh, are unconscious, so they can't decide for themselves. Uh, and then you get an informed opinion uh, or uh, from, from the, you, you get informed, sorry, by the doctor, uh, but they have no tools yeah. to decide uh, about what's right and what's wrong. They have never thought about these issues. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, you know, here we are, we are all going to die. Uh, and uh, and we maybe we should be discussing about these things more openly um, for, for, for many reasons, uh, not just for psychological reasons, but also for uh, philosophical reasons. How do you do with your children? So your, your wife comes back home, I, I think, uh, you know, heavy with this, uh, with, her, uh, with her job every night. Uh, you support her. Uh, uh, how do you introduce the theme to your children? The theme of death. Right. Is there there? Uh, is well, it killed? Oh, God. See, so for example, uh, uh, <laughs> we, uh, that we are, we are only now uh -huh. I, I I admit I am at a loss. I don't know how to introduce it to, to my children. Just to say the ages, my, my daughter is four years old, so uh, and my son is two years old. Uh, my daughter started using the word uh, death, uh -huh. uh, but I, I think she's, I'm not sure she understands what it means exactly. Uh, I mean, she knows that, that she can understand that it's a state, some sort of state, which is different to other states, um, of of uh, of being or a modality, but she doesn't quite uh, know, of course, what it is. And and we are in a conversation with my wife to decide how should what should we tell her, because if you do do we use the this uh, well known paradigm that it's like uh, sleep that someone is like sleeping, mm -hmm. uh, but then you might create other issues. Uh, and my. And uh, we had this conversation with my wife and she was telling me, well, maybe we should consult a professional psychologist. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I don't know to what extent uh, psychologists have actually um, come up with, uh, you know, what sort of advice they would have to give us. Uh, but the problem is, I think it's deeper but, because it also depends on what kind, what is the, uh, ontology behind the psychologist. What I mean is that uh, it depends also on what the psychologist believes about this world. It's a, it, so it's not that simple. It's not just about uh, um, you know becoming more uh, calm uh, about uh, death. It's also that I wouldn't want to say something that is entirely untrue. Uh, only to have uh, someone who has been told an untrue story 
realize later at a later stage that it's all yeah. wrong and uh, you know uh, fall <laughs> have a massive breakdown mm -hmm. so, so, so so what so maybe the reason we have breakdowns uh, when it comes to uh, realizing that we're the, the death and finitude has to do with the way we set it up in the beginning to begin with maybe the stories we tell are are um, such that uh, when they get toppled, they create a massive crisis. Uh, now, I'm not saying that we should tell kids, you know what, you, your children, that, uh, you know, you die, that's the end of it, and that's uh, <laughs> eternity, right? Uh, or even, uh, even outside of time, you know, that's the end of time even. Uh, Yeah, but uh, but maybe we should uh, find uh, some. Maybe some mythologies are better than others, or some stories are better than others. And I admit, we ha I don't have a solution to that. This is completely fresh to me. And despite the fact that I have been a professional philosopher for uh, all these, well, not many years. I mean, I'm young, um, uh, but uh, say 10 years. Uh, mm -hmm. I, and I've been thinking about these things. I have no solution whatsoever because now it's not a theoretical exercise anymore. I have a real oh. four-year-old who, yeah. uh, and I have, to, you know, it, it's more, uh, it's concrete. Yeah. And I can't, uh, uh, you know, um, play with anyone's mind or experiment too much. I have, I have to get it right. <laughs> rather, rather quickly. Yeah. And, I, and I'm sure that something is wrong that needs to be fixed mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the stories or in terms of the way we do relate to to death. Yeah, I mean, because the pressure, it's important to give them the sense of the preciousness of life, the uniqueness of life. You know, when certain children tend to be a little mean with insects or animals, and you say, no, you shouldn't do this and that. And uh, you give them the sense for what, uh, for how fragile uh, each body is. Yeah, but it's uh, a metaphysical concept because uh, it literally goes beyond uh, our physics. It goes beyond our body. Something is, and then it's not. <laughs> yeah. So, I, so the the, the problem I have with with um, well, is that I wish to, if I am to consult a psychologist, I would really like to know, uh, have a chat yeah, with them before. Yeah, like what's your? I mean, if they. If they believe in God, for example, mm -hmm. uh, that would be that would mean something for me because I don't believe in God. Um, uh, if uh, if they are if they don't if they're a Stoic, for example, or if they believe in circular time, or if they are a Buddhist, I would want to know. I think because it will affect of inevitably course. the advice or the approach. Have you noticed through your uh, wife experience or your debates with her, uh, if uh, a religious worldview, a strong religious background uh, helps uh, in accepting death, uh, or uh, in the end uh, we are all, uh, you know, fragile in front of it? Well, so I from from what I uh, from what I gather, it. it, it um, It's unpredictable. It doesn't really matter because, and that's my own take. It's because um, many people they they would say that they practice uh, a religion, but uh, somehow it hasn't matured in them, or they are um, they ha they haven't really worked out what it means uh, when it when it actually comes the moment of death when it's really there how they would react because they have they haven't really worked through it i think so but but i i think it does help sometimes mm -hmm. uh, if 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 you really believe and do it properly um of course now i'm creating this uh, dichotomy between authenticity and inauthenticity which uh, um yeah it might help um but but you but of course you need to believe in it you, you need to really believe in it of course uh, yeah. 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 Um, 
So just I just wanted to say something in relation to the previous question, like how did my life change um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, philosophically? So my so Heidegger, I think, which is the philosopher I'm studying mainly. Uh, yes, he did get many things right about death, but uh, slowly I'm realizing that there are some things missing uh, from from his account, and I've figured it out uh, uh, empirically. I mean, uh, from my own experiences, which is after getting married and having children, uh, slowly but surely, uh, the my the shift of my attention. Uh, uh, my attention shifted and it became um, other oriented it became oriented towards uh, my wife and uh, organized life around my my wife's job and then uh, my children so so there's something new uh, happening in me about death uh, and it's the fact that I I no longer I'm no longer, I don't, I'm not afraid of dying myself because I had worked uh, on, on that on my own. But now there is a, uh, there is a new, uh, I will call it, it's a full-fledged existential crisis, um, which I can't uh, deal with. It. I mean, I haven't found the way to, to not even analyze it properly. And it has to do with the prospect of, of me dying as a, uh, prematurely, which would mean that I would, my children would be left without their father, uh, and so uh, you know, completely exposed, and uh, all the traumas that are created by the, the possibility of losing your father uh, mm-hmm. or your parent at this young age. So that's uh, that's something different because. Um, I think qualitatively, it's a it's an, a fear of death that is uh, different because it's all it it stems from another another's uh, life uh, point of view, uh, and then and then w- something which is even um, w- well I can't say worse w- pr- yes worse is my children's death um, because you know you realize that. <laughs> uh, you know, I will die. That's fine. I mean, I've I've been uh, I have realized this uh, early on in my life, mm-hmm. uh, but I had never thought the possibility that my that I will have children and they will die. So I'm, I have to somehow work out how, that it's not just me; it's my children yeah. uh, who are the most precious thing I have uh, in, uh, and and it's not about me anymore. So that's something I think is missing from uh, Heidegger's account, uh, but I, I have to admit, I haven't probably understood how it works uh, and analyze it. Uh, and I wish to write on this in, in the near future to see how it complements or whether it modifies uh, uh, Heidegger's account of uh, anxiety, existential anxiety. Because as far as I understand uh, the what we have in our control, what we have in our hands is acceptance. I mean, I don't know if there's something else that you understood that we can share to give courage to those parents who are going through something as hard as this in this moment. I think, yeah, I I, I really don't know. Uh, This is completely new to me Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm not sure there is any way of going through it unless you actually go through it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, well, as regards acceptance, um, because I got interested lately in um, in mindfulness mm-hmm. uh, and uh, acceptance-based theories of uh, of uh, emotions uh, of behave of um, you know how to deal with. Uh, of therapy, sorry, like uh, acceptance-based theory uh, uh, therapy, and uh, you know, they, I mean, it depends how we, what we understand by acceptance mm. and what it does. So, if acceptance would mean uh, that, in some ways, uh, anxiety or fear of death would resolve or uh, somehow disappear, 
I would be against that. Yes. Uh, because uh, philosophically, it would create a host of other problems. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, because it's through anxiety that we get a sense of time, for example, and temporality. Um, and um, I would wish to keep that uh, there, the, 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 the uh, consciousness uh, of, of time. And that time is finite. I mean, because if it's not finite, I can't see uh, how it uh, makes sense. Um, and so uh, I have become interested in developing or considering how Heidegger could, through Heidegger's philosophy, could develop uh, any form of mindfulness. Uh, mm -hmm. Like see if his uh, model of authenticity, as he writes it, in, 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 as, he, as it's developed in Being in Time, his book uh, that he wrote in 1927, um, if we can have any sort of any version of mindfulness uh, that would keep all these notions that he would want to call authenticity there. Uh, and um, actually, that's, uh, um, that's my project now. Uh, namely, um, uh, I'm writing a monograph now on uh, where I am trying to juxtapose Heidegger's philosophy, theory of emotions, mm -hmm. and, and a model of mindfulness, let's call it like that, and uh, juxtapose it with um, stoic uh, theories of emotion uh, and uh, stoic uh, mindfulness as opposed to Buddhist mindfulness or Buddhist-derived mindfulness, uh, and see where, where it, it gets me. If Heidegger has something new to offer, something different uh, compared to the Stoics, and if acceptance or, uh, would mean something different for, for Heidegger than uh, the Stoics. Can you tell us a little bit of both? I mean, a, a, a short synthesis of Stoic theory of emotions, Heidegger's theory of emotions. Okay, so... Um, I will terribly simplify. Please, yeah. Uh, the, yes. the story is much, okay, the real story is much more complicated. Of course. Uh, but, and uh, I'll be unfair to both here just to set up the juxtaposition. Uh, but, I think the responsibility I asked you. <laughs> but the, 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 my hypothesis is, is this mm -hmm. that, uh, so uh, to begin with, I focus on early Stoic, uh, Stoic philosophers, uh, namely Zeno of Sitiu and Chrysippus. Uh, and they have a relatively uh, sim simple theory of emotions uh, where emotions are um, considered to be products of, of uh, judgment. Uh, so products of reasoning. So it's bad reasoning. So when uh, you uh, when you your reasoning uh, gets something wrong, uh, you uh, you have you experience uh, negative emotions. For example, mm -hmm. uh, you have fear arising because you haven't properly judged the state of affairs, mm -hmm. uh, and therefore, uh, if uh, these negative emotions are a product of judgment, it means that we can resolve them the same way that they have been created. So if we correct uh, our judgment, if we revise our judgment, uh, then those negative emotions will go away. They, so, and the, say the aim of uh, the Stoic uh, philosopher or the Stoic person is to be as uh, free from emotions as, as possible. Uh, and here I, I would want to see how fear of death plays out and so on and so forth. Now, on the other hand, we have Heidegger uh, specifically in his early work that I mentioned in Being in Time, where uh, emotions, and I'm sim again, I'm simplifying, um, are not of judgment. Uh, so they are, let's say, a different faculty, and they, of course, work both together and antagonistically to um, reason, to understanding, let's say, to be more precise. 
but uh, emotions have something fundamental to offer and they are actually uh, without them you can't have uh, judgment uh, either so they serve a fundamental purpose and so when it comes to understanding the meaning of a life and the meaning of being uh, Heidegger focuses on anxiety and it's through the experience of anxiety that we get to understand the meaning of being uh, which in that book he called it is temporality, is time, it's finitude, that we have a beginning and an end uh, as creatures. Um, so that's the setup, uh, more or less. Uh, and, 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 and various other, uh, you know, uh, concepts around these, uh, these uh, uh, two opposing poles that I have just <laughs> very... Okay. How do you think uh, what you just said about emotions, uh, making judgments uh, and taking an ethical stance affects uh, or uh, is reflected uh, in your work with refugees, uh, with uh, migrants? Uh, um, do you see any connection with that day of your life? Right. Um, so, I'll, I'll, again, I'll be a bit... Uh, autobiographical to give the Please. context. Um, I was outside of Cyprus for many, many years. I studied in the US, mm -hmm. then in England, then I was in Germany, then in Ireland. So I came back, uh, I left when I was 21, came back in my 30s um, to a country that had changed um, in many respects, but for me, the most important change, or what I, I, what I faced with, uh, was the refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, which was a very, it was, it, it was a series of events. There were wars in our uh, geopolitical neighborhood. We had Syria, we had also the Palestinians, we had uh, um, Lebanon, uh, but also many, uh, uh, migrants uh, from Africa, and suddenly uh, Cyprus, of course, other Mediterranean countries too, like Italy yeah. and Greece, uh, uh, you know, suddenly a lot of refugees and migrants started coming here, uh, and uh, it was so abrupt and massive that it created a lot of tensions a lot of racism, but also a lot of urgency to step in and um, and help out these people. Uh, the, so it was, in a way, it was like a, something that was solicited uh, to to react to respond to uh, a need of the other, and it's an other whom I have. I don't have many uh, common things with. Um, uh, because look, I mean, so I'm neither religious. Uh, I am, um, you know, I come from from a privileged uh, background compared to them because I am a, an EU citizen. I live in Cyprus. I am white, uh, uh, and so on. I'm, I'm I'm a man, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, and I, I do consider myself to be, uh, let's say, a liberal, atheist, all these things. And then, but then what happens is we have many people coming over from Africa. They are black. And of course, they uh, experience intense racism, uh, not just at the level of, uh, of uh, social level, but also institutional racism. Um, uh, but also we ha and we have people coming from uh, from other countries in the Middle East and I mean there's no need for me to overanalyze. You know how it goes. There's a lot of racism, uh, and suddenly I have to react to all these things. Um, I feel that I need to respond and help out. Um, so uh, okay, I, I forgot what was the question. 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> how emotions uh, that's affect right. yes. the answer. Yes, that's so, right. Uh, um, and the ethics of it. So we are getting there. Right. Yeah, it. yeah, we're getting there. So, so the thing is, um, I had, I, I was realizing that the the response, the ethical response, was uh, could was based um, either one could argue to could make a case uh, based on on reason, uh, make rational arguments to on why we have an obligation to respond to this and uh, help out. Uh, and the other aspect was the emotional. Uh, and uh, I was trying to, and, and I came um, to, I found myself realizing that if we focus on the emotions that these people undergo, uh, I think we, are, we open up uh, more possibilities to do the right thing, to respond to, uh, to the call, it's a it's a particular obligation, and, and that the, you receive a call, um, and uh, this pertains not only to my emotions or the emotions of the agent who is in this country, uh, mm -hmm. but also uh, ident so ident identifying our own emotions, but also identifying their emotions. Uh, so the story would be, a typical story would be that someone is hostile to the refugees because they feel threatened by them. Uh, they feel threatened by them. The way they rationalize it and they conceive it would be either they think, they they think that um, they will take their jobs, they think that they have a plan to Islam, Islamicize uh, Cyprus, which is absurd. Uh, but, uh, you know, but of course, what's the, if they want to practice their religion, what's the problem? Um, and so uh, they base their reactions on anxiety, mm -hmm. uh, their hostility. But then you start uh, analyzing and trying to make them see that the other, the refugee also has, it's because of anxiety and fear that, he, and all these existential threats that he or she has made all these uh, efforts, this journey, risky journey to come to this country, or they were persecuted and so on and so forth. And so this creates a, you know, a common ground upon which to acknowledge that, look, we are all precarious beings. Uh, we are all in the similar, in the same boat. Uh, and uh, based on that, uh, we can, uh, you know, um, justify uh, uh, solidarity mm -hmm. and the need for solidarity. Thanks. Yeah, here we come back to what you were saying before about acceptance. Acceptance and not as uh, deleting uh, the anxiety, those uh, elements that are uh, essential to being human. Uh, but as a way of recognizing that they are there. Because if we acknowledge our own anxiety, we are able to relate to other human beings who feel the same uh, existential threat. That's right. And, but also not only negative emotions, but also you know, positive emotions like, uh, uh, you know, happiness and or joy. Joy, uh, you know, there's this, uh, again, this idea that uh, it's, it's not fine if they, if you see a refugee who is uh, uh, smiling or has a moment of joy, it's as if it's prohibited. You know, like they have to pretend or they have to get stuck and remain stuck in their anxiety uh, or in in fear. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know what? Just like you have the need to be joy joyful at moments, it's the same thing. You know. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point about what we are experiencing also with uh, Ukraine. Um, they, uh, they might be more in contact with the sense of the happiness and joy for life than others because uh, they are at the core of life. Uh, I have a friend of a friend who just managed to escape from um, Ukraine and 
to share this story of feeling uh, at some point uh, a wave of happiness uh, leaving her and uh, she just uh, ran away from a war uh, left behind left everything behind and yet uh, she felt oh my god life is wonderful and it's precious mm-hmm. so, yeah you you are allowed to feel uh, all the oh, uh, that's yeah. right that's right yeah our so- solidarity uh, shouldn't stop when the other is suddenly yeah. happy. <laughs> not a signal that you're no longer obliged uh, to meet their needs. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, to move uh, uh, happiness on a personal level, how, how and when did you feel the happiest in your life? What is the peak of happiness for you? Well, uh, okay, so I... It, it, I, I inevitably, I will say so. You know the normal cliches, but I think there is a reason why cliches are there. It's because uh, they make sense for a lot of people and for a long time, for a lot of time. So it's uh, it has to do with my children, but mm-hmm. specifically with, with a caveat. With it, uh, I think if I to locate happiness more clearly in my yeah. life, uh-huh. it has been when my children are are happy uh, and combined with a sense of security, job security with, uh, in my own life. So specifically at the beginning of a contract, <laughs> uh, when I have, you know, now I am in my third postdoc and, you know, it's the usual thing where you, I have to apply for jobs and it's endless. So when, a, when my children are happy and I, am, I have a new job contract and I don't have to worry too much about it uh, at least for some time mm-hmm. is that <laughs> yeah makes sense that practical security to be able to enjoy life with the people you love doing your part in the world and being able to survive while doing that. yeah and, and it, it also helps my uh, own job I mean my uh, my my philosophy so you know because I get to I can philosophize uh, better I think because I have more uh, time uh, and uh, more uh, I'm able to concentrate for longer periods of time you know when everything is in in place let's say let's put it like that at least temporarily and then uh, what would you say is the main hindrance then of uh, for, for your research is it still time related uh, um, funds are related or uh... Well, so uh, let me think. Um, I think the main hindrance would be it. It has to do with what I've just uh, with what I've just uh, mentioned. So when uh, when I'm towards the end of a of a contract, mm-hmm. and I have to resume uh, writing uh, job applications and uh, research proposals uh, and um, it's just it's absurd and it becomes unsustainable because uh, you have no you know have very little time to actually do what you're paid for to philosophize and uh, and write uh, articles and books and so on and so forth uh, because you have to write you because you're thinking about your next uh, uh, contract your next project uh, and it's, um, you know, it's not a good situation. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's because of politics. This is a, these are political decisions made by, uh, you know, various bodies and universities uh, that create, that sustain this um, status, status quo. Uh, and I think it's unproductive too. So that's, so the, one of the main hindrances to my, research is the fact that when my contract is close to end each time i have to invest all this time to come up with new research proposals uh, and you know there's like a five percent um chance of each proposal to be successful um and uh, another hindrance would be indeed the uh, child minding uh so some days it's just impossible to work uh mm-hmm. because uh you know having children the demands are immense and it's a bit unpredictable at times um 
and also you you worry about this and that uh and illnesses uh children children in the first uh, years of their lives they're always uh, sick and they make you sick too so that's uh, something i had under uh i hadn't realized how how um you know important it becomes uh, and, and then we had the pandemic too uh uh, which meant schools were closed, we were working from home. Uh, and so all of these things have been a uh, hindrance to my research. Yeah. Where, where did you find the um, energy, the moral and emotional energy to stand up against it? I mean, to stand up against uh, rejections, uh, against uh, illnesses, uh, against uh, uh, this uh, Sisyphus uh, feeling of having to start uh, dragging the rock up the hill again. Yeah, so uh, look, uh, so I think uh, it's because you have a creature next to you who okay. drag, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no option really. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you're sick, uh, you, you have no option. You have to keep doing it. Um, with, with respect to rejection, um, I mean, job uh, it, uh, applications and so on and so forth, uh, to be honest, I haven't found a way to deal with it uh, <laughs> or to uh, you know, protect myself. Uh, but on the other hand, um, it, uh, I think if I protect myself in a way that I would become, uh, you know, um, less uh, sensitive to rejection. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it would have to. It would mean that I have also lost my motivation. So you know, my my desire. So I really want to, ha- you know, to apply for X grant or Y job, mm-hmm. uh, and I invest all this time to get in and then I get really disappointed when I don't get it despite the fact that I know what the chances are mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I don't I can't do I can't it can't be otherwise in my in my personally you know this is personal so um, because then I'll try again and I, I still have the desire to succeed mm-hmm. um, which is what uh, will make me you know try again um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but uh, whereas maybe in the past I had more time to work with my own disappointments, now there is not much time. <laughs> you have to move on faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> like you know, life goes on, and uh, I think there is no better example of how life goes on uh, when you have a small child that. Is, is a, it's a combination of being both very cute and very annoying at the same time or <laughs> everything, you know? So it really, it, it drags you out from your... <laughs> yeah, actually it makes your ego necessarily smaller because you have to tend to so many things that, uh, okay, <laughs> the urgency is outside. That's right, yeah. Look, thank you so much for uh, this uh, wonderful conversation we had. Uh, we arrived already at the end of um, our talk, but as usual, I have uh, the very last question, which gives the name to the podcast. So what's the meaning of life for you? What did oh, you God. I know. It always gives well, you Yeah. Oh my God, I didn't know that you were going to ask me that. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have uh, come up with a... I want the fresh. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, look, um, I, I, you know, every, every year, maybe I have a different answer. But now, uh, at, at, the, at the stage I'm at, I, I, my answer is quite, uh, it's quite ugly. I think uh, it's meaningless. Oh, uh, all right. <laughs> so I'm... Um, um, I'm going through a more like a Schopenhauerian yes. uh, moment, which uh, I think I suspect I'll uh, I'll get over it. Um, but but that's but that's the thing. The thing is uh, where I stand now. I do think life is completely meaningless, right. and it has to do. And it's it's terrifying me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's really terrifying me, and I, it's what I mentioned earlier that it has to do with the. Uh, 
fresh realization that my children are dying too, mm -hmm. uh, which I haven't found a way to deal with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the peculiar thing here is that life goes on, you know, despite my realization now <laughs> that, uh, that life is completely meaningless, it goes on and I, you know, I'm, I'm functional. Mm -hmm. And I have to be. And, and it's what I said. It's because, uh, you know, in a, in a bit, my wife would come home with the kids and uh, I'll uh, forget about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see your point of view. Life don't necessarily need to make sense. Life goes on by itself. And maybe life doesn't need a big, a big, a big meaning to to go on. Does it have your meaning? Do you have your meaning for life or not even that? You just function because you have to function. No, I mean, yes, yes, of course, there are, it's meaningful. I don't know if there is a meaning, uh -huh. you know, what is the meaning the of life. Meaning of life. Uh -huh. uh, but, of, but it's meaningful. In, uh, uh, tasks are meaningful. Uh, the, as I, the way I respond to needs of other human beings uh, so there is meaning in uh, there is you know small meaningful uh, moments or uh, um, you know there is lo local meaning let's say uh -huh. yes uh, despite the fact that the big picture is there is no big picture <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, yeah. you know, it's the nothing <laughs> I see your point I mean there's that too yeah, yeah. Uh, we have plenty of philosophy that uh, will uh, agree with you on uh, yeah, yeah. Schopenhauer being one of them. Thank you so much, Christos, for this wonderful uh, talk we had uh, together. And um, yeah, thank, I you very, thank you very much for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Me too, me too. I hope uh, we'll keep working together and good luck on uh, all your work. Thank you very much. This podcast was funded by the Faculty Support Grant at CSU East Bay. Follow our social media accounts for episode updates, highlights, and other behind-the-scenes materials.